Last Sunday, I was talking to the teens, and the subject of eternity came up in the lesson. What I told them, I'll tell you. Let's take an imaginary trip out to the soccer field behind the church parking lot over there to the east. You walk across the bridge, and we are collectively standing on the berm that overlooks the field. Here we are as a group, as a church, standing up on this little hill, and each of you as individuals now are asked to go down to the soccer field and pick out one blade of grass and then return to the berm. So everybody heads down the berm, they find themselves on the field, they bend over, pick up one blade of grass, and everyone returns with that small blade between their fingers. We're all back up on the berm now. We can see the field. When we look at the blade of grass that's in our hand, we can say that that represents our lifetime, 60, 70, however many years God gives us, 100. But there's still a field in front of us. Every other blade of grass that didn't get touched on that field, still connected to the earth, represents the amount of time that we will spend in eternity. Actually, that would just be the beginning of eternity because we know that eternity is infinite. It's unending in nature. The little blade of grass that you have is life. The field and every other field in West Michigan, every other soccer field, football field, um, baseball field, every yard, every little strip of grass between the sidewalk and the road, filled with blades of grass. Count them all up if you want. Those would represent lives, if you will, or lifespans and add it all up together. It's just the beginning of eternity because eternity is by nature infinite, unending. And here we stand with one blade of grass, our lifetime. What are we doing with it? How are we spending it? How we spend it and how we believe now according to the Bible, is very important. We're given the gospel, we're given the truth of Christ, and what we do in this lifetime determines our eternity. One of the questions that's often in front of us, commercials, commercials of investment, and brokers are promising to get you returns. And when the market turns down, there are some investors who say, you won't lose a thing with me. And when the market goes up, you only stand to gain. And in some way, they are trying to sell you on how they can protect your investment, how they can protect your future. And so a question this morning is, who is protecting you? Who's protecting your future? Who is protecting your eternity? Because what we find in Scripture is that there is an enemy that each one of us faces, an enemy who is much greater than us, seeking to destroy us, seeking to destroy our faith and our salvation. We need someone greater than our enemy to secure us and to protect us, and this psalm points us to the greater protector. This morning, our psalm is divided into two sections, verses 1 through 12, and we'll spend most of our time this morning on that, and then verses 13 through 20. The first section, verses 1 through 12, we could say is this. Point number one, I should praise God because he is the stronghold of my soul. 
I should praise God because he is the stronghold of my soul. Now, what you see in verses 1 and 2 is a clear practice of praise from David. You see the practice of praise in verses 1 and 2. There are four phrases that he gives that are kind of like parallel statements, meaning they have the same sort of meaning, but they are said slightly differently. So you see it in verse 1. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all your wonderful deeds. Verse 2, I will be glad and exalt in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. If we were to summarize those four lines that I just read, we could say this is the practice of praise. David is praising God. He is elevating God in his heart by bringing him into a personal focus, lifting him up and saying, isn't God great? Look at all of his wonderful deeds. I'm going to be thankful. I'm going to exalt. I'm going to be lifted up in him. And so a question that comes is, if God is great and worthy of praise, what is it that is so wonderful that God has done? What would bring praise to your lips that you would be willing not simply just to be aware of, you would be willing to talk about? Like something great happens in your life, and you go to somebody else and you're like, I, I just want to share this. So you find the answer to that in verses 3 through 10. And this is the reasons for praise. The reasons for praise, starting in verse 3, is because David's enemies have perished. So when he says in verse 3, when my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. Verse 5, you have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. So here's David, a real man who feels real things. And he is praising God in verses 1 and 2, and then in verses 3 through 6, we see that he's praising God because his enemies have been defeated. Keep in mind, David is a king. In verse 6, he talks about the cities that have come to an end. I believe it was verse 6. These cities. So David is a king, and the Philistine cities, the Canaanite cities, the surrounding nations that are around him, they are a constant threat to his existence. And David rises up and he can say, these enemies appear to be greater than me. But now in verses 3 through 6, he's able to praise God because God has dealt with his enemies in a very drastic way. In fact, three times throughout this section, he uses the word, they have perished. Um, they've perished. They're done. They're completely finished. Verse 6 says, it's so final that the very memory of them has perished. I mean, wouldn't that be nice where you don't ever have to wake up in the middle of the night and stay awake because that thing that won't get out of your mind, that, that thing that somebody said or that, that challenge that you're facing and it presents itself as an enemy is taking up your mind at three o'clock in the morning and you're wishing that that whole even thought would just be done. And David is able to say, 
look, I'm in a place right now where I can praise God because the enemy and even the memory of the enemy is finished. It's a place of peace. There's something going on here that helps me appreciate this section. Um, As you study this, it appears as though all of what has happened in verses 3 through 6 is in the past tense. You see, when my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish, for you have maintained my just cause. Verse 5, you have rebuked the nations, you have made the wicked perish. In studying this, just a little jewel to throw out for you, Hebrew scholars call verses 3 through 6 something named the prophetic perfect. The tense of these verbs is the prophetic perfect, meaning simply that David can live in the present knowing that the future has already been accomplished. He can live with God being so big in his life that as he sees his enemies out in front of him, as he sees the foe in challenge out in front of him, he can say, God has already accomplished the defeat of my enemy. It's a place that a person of faith lives in. So you have these prophetic perfects this way of living that completely trusts in what God is doing. And then, of course, I've already mentioned it, you have this finality where the enemy is perishing. And I mentioned it, it's there three times where this is all done, it's finished, it's complete. And so as we're seeing this, David is able to praise God because his enemy is as good as done. Now there's two questions that came to my mind as I was studying this. The question that first faces me is, how are you and I supposed to understand enemy language within the book of Psalms? I mean, there's a lot going on in the world. The tragic events that happened this last week in Afghanistan um, is fresh in our minds, right? And on one hand, we use that term enemy and we're like, okay, I want to impose this Psalm 9 on what's taking place over in Afghanistan. We have to be careful with that. Some of you are going through very difficult relationships. Someone living in your life is functioning as a challenge or an enemy. And you're... You're you're tempted to impose this strictly on that person and say, God, I want you to bring me through verses three through six where even the memory of that person perishes. Some days that would be pretty nice, wouldn't it? How are we supposed to rightly understand the term enemy, especially as you continue throughout Scripture? It gets a little challenging, especially when you come to the New Testament, right? Remember the Sermon on the Mount, what are we supposed to do with our enemies? Pray for them, bless those who persecute you. Paul picks this up in Romans 12 with a few passages there, where he says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Kind of a surrender to the Lord picture that's taking place with the person that has hurt you. You have to understand 
that this was written in a particular era when God's people were under the rule of a king whom God had appointed. Israel has a king. They didn't start off with a king. God was their king. They grumbled and complained and said, we want to be like the other nations. We want to have a king that rules over us. It wasn't a good request. But God granted them this request. He gave them a king. King Saul started. That wasn't too great. And along comes King David, the best, the most notorious king in Israel's history. David is, in a sense, God's representative for the people. As God was king over the people, they said, God, we don't want that. We want somebody whom we can see. And so God says, okay, I will give you a king who represents me. And this is how the king is positioned in Israel. The king represents God and his authority here on earth. So a big part of how David sees his enemies is that they are God's enemies, They stand against the representative of God, and in standing against this representative king, they have chosen to stand against God himself. So when you read the enemy language in the Psalms, you need to realize that these enemies are primarily enemies against God and against God's people, the church of Christ today. We have to see that this is an attack against God and God's people. Which leads to another question. If this is how we're supposed to rightly understand enemy language in the Psalms, then who is the ultimate enemy? As you read scripture from a big picture view, you see a constant enemy of God from the very beginning of creation. You see Genesis 1 and 2 where God creates all things, Adam and Eve, and here comes God's enemy, Satan, and his anti-God wickedness seeking to unravel God's work, the enemy of God. You move forward through Genesis, and you come to chapter 6, and it's clear that the enemy of God has been working in the lives of people because as you get to Genesis 6, here's the statement, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. You continue moving through the story of scripture and you see that God's people are continually under attack. Whether it's Pharaoh who is practicing an ethnic infanticide. Every Hebrew child and every Hebrew boy under the age of two has to be killed. God's people are constantly facing an enemy. In Ephesians chapter 6, we come to Paul's discussion about putting on the armor of God, and he says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, and that's an interesting statement because Paul certainly had plenty of physical suffering. But he says, we're wrestling against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And then he goes on to say, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. All right, so this enemy theme that goes throughout scripture 
we're seeing is Satan. 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, we know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So you have this contrast that is going on. God and his people are facing an enemy. And specifically, again, I, as tragic as the events were this past week of what happened in Afghanistan, and as wrong and sinful and displeasing they are to God, this psalm is not talking about Afghanistan. This psalm is not talking about ISIS-K. You have an enemy that is facing you. You have an enemy that is seeking to sift you like wheat apart from God. And this is where Jesus came to Peter and said to Peter in Luke chapter 22, he said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. What is the enemy doing? The enemy is seeking to tear down, erode, undermine, eliminate your faith, deconstruct your faith. God is not really God. That's what the enemy is doing. And we all face this enemy. So you have this picture in Psalm 9 where here's the representative of God on earth being attacked by these nations over here. Who is behind the attack hurting or aiming to hurt the people of God? It's Satan. Today in our lives, as you walk with Christ in life, you are facing an enemy who is aiming to attack the people of God and undermine and erode your faith and separate you from Christ. Who is it? It's Satan. You all face an enemy. And David can say this, I praise God because he has defeated my enemy. That's what we see in the gospel. That's what we sing about in our songs leading up to our sermon this morning. We can praise God because he has defeated the enemy. We'll look at that in just a little bit. Verses 7 and 8, the second reason for why David praises God. We'll move through this quickly. God is just in his judgments. Verse 7, the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne of justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. David is thankful that God will judge fairly. Nothing gets past God. Every bit of evidence is brought into the courtroom, and God will render a fair and faithful verdict. Back in chapter 7, verse 11, it said, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. God is fair in all of his judgment. He will see everything. All will give an account to God. And David says, I can praise God for that because he is the judge over all things. Verses 9 and 10, there's a third reason for praising God. He is the stronghold for his people. So verse 9 and 10, the Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. So catch the imagery here. David sees his enemy. He sees God. And he sees God as a stronghold for his people. What is a stronghold? It's a place where no one or nothing can touch you. It's the bunker where no bombs can get through. It's the fortress on top of that rock mountain with high rock walls that protect everybody who is inside. Now, imagine that this fortress is no longer limited to a location. Imagine that this fortress 
can go with you wherever you are. No matter what situation you find yourself in, no matter what kind of scenario where Satan is aiming to plant his hook into you, whether it's an intense boardroom meeting where you're being pressured into sin, whether it's heavy loneliness and you're wondering, God, are you really there? Intense doubt about your faith, a crowded hallway, young people where you're hearing every other word, just a swear word, or every other conversation about sex. Everywhere the people of God goes, David can say, I have found a fortress that is going to protect me. And so the encouragement for David is this, I am safe because God is the stronghold of my soul no matter where I am. It reminds me of Psalm 46, verses 6 and 7, where he can say that the nations rage, the kingdoms totter, he utters his voice, the earth melts, but the Lord of hosts, notice, is with us, and how is his with us understood? The God of Jacob is our fortress. Christian, what an encouragement for us to know that wherever you are, God is like a fortress who surrounds your soul and is your stronghold. He's greater than your enemy, and the enemy cannot sink his teeth into you. Jesus presents this theme with a different picture in John chapter 10. He says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and that they may have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And you can see this picture in your mind where a shepherd is overseeing this flock of sheep. They need to be brought into a secure location. They're brought into the secure location, the secure pasture, and they can graze as much as they want to because the shepherd is guarding the door. And it begs a question then. Are you in the fortress? Are you in or protected by the shepherd? There is an enemy seeking to destroy your soul, and Jesus is referring to Satan. And here you have this blade of grass representing one life, and now all the other blades of grass represent eternity. Does Satan have your soul for eternity, or are you safe in the stronghold through the salvation of Jesus Christ? And how does one enter? If you're here this morning as a non-Christian, I'm glad you're here. Verse 9 of Psalm 10 says, The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in those in the time of trouble, and those who know your name have put their trust in you. The only way to be protected by God is to have faith in him as your Savior. Jesus has come. He lived a life of perfect obedience. He went to the cross to pay the punishment for your sins. He offers his life as a gift to you, and those who receive his life in trust are brought into the sheepfold. They're brought into the fortress. They've entered into the fortress and are protected forever. And so the call for you, non-Christian, would be right now, trust God. Trust God. Eternity is at stake here. But for the Christian now, David is saying, 
I've trusted God and I can see my enemy out there and as I stand back and look at this, God is truly worthy of my praise. Like God is truly worthy of, of exalting in my heart. God is truly worthy of thanking because of what he has done for me. He has defeated the enemy who is greater than I. And yet the author doesn't stop there. It's kind of strange where he goes next. You see in verses 1 through 12 this continual theme of praise, but notice the shift that takes place in verses 13 through 20. Verse 13, be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me, O you who lift me up from the gates of death. And, and you have to ask yourself the question, well, David, wait a second. Verses 1 through 12, there is such confidence there. Even in verses 11 and 12, you finish with such confidence. And now you move into verse 13, and where's the confidence? Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. It's almost as though David is schizo a little bit. Is David schizo on us here? And we'd have to say, he's not any more schizo than we are. Leads us to point number two, and we'll unpack this. I should plead with God because only he can keep me from eternal death. I should be pleading with God because he can, only he can keep me from eternal death. Now, notice why David is pleading with God. Letter A, he's got the affliction and hatred of the enemy in verse 13. David is very much like one of us. This affliction and hatred is felt that he says he feels like he's standing at the gates of death. I was reading To Kill a Mockingbird this last summer, uh, that classic book, and here's Scout and... Um, her older brother, Trip. I can't remember the, the other guy. But they live in this neighborhood, and down the road is this haunted-looking house. And inside that house lives Boo Radley. And to go up to that house is death, practically. And so they dare each other with just unreasonable things to swing the gate open and, and run through that gate and see if you can tap the the post or the porch, and, and then run out of there as fast as you can. And the fear is that if they go past the gate, they're going to be caught and they're going to be doomed. They're going to be sucked into the haunted house there. There's this picture that past this gate represents death. As David looks at this, he sees the gates of death. And maybe you could imagine yourself on a long, narrow road, and at one end of the narrow road is this huge cast iron gate. And, and the sides of the road are, are maybe some rock cliffs that are impenetrable. You can't climb up them. There they are. And so on one end is this gate of death, and to go past this gate is doom. And so you turn around, and the only way out is this direction, but all you can see is an enemy who's pushing you towards the gate of death. And David's like, I've got no way out. I'm on the gate of death. There's no escape for me. And David can say, be gracious to me, O Lord. I feel like I've been defeated. Again, 
there's this question, how can you move so quickly from praise to pleading? From being confident that God has put you in the stronghold to being concerned. It's where we live. It's this already not yet. God has secured my salvation, but we still feel the battle that we're going through. And we say things like, God, if this goes any further, it feels like Satan is going to win and the gates of death are going to swallow me up. So what are you going to do? You're going to praise God for what he has done and you're going to plead with God to continue saving you. You've saved me, but God, I haven't come off the battlefield yet. Keep me going. Verses 15 and 16, he comes back to this theme of victory. The victory of God, we see. The nations have sunk in the pit that they made, in the net that they hid. Their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. God, you are doing things. You are causing the wicked to fall upon themselves. In verse 17, he says, The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. Verse 18, But the needy are never forgotten. The needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. And this is where he comes to the mindfulness of God. The mindfulness of God in verse 18. God will not forget his people. God will not forget you. It's another reason why you can pray to him when you feel as though you're on the gates of death. God has not forgotten you. God is very much aware of every challenge that you're facing. He is very much aware of the effects of a sinful world. He is very much aware of those temptations, those times where you feel like you are going to be defeated. He has not forgotten you. And so we pray. This leads us to two applications now as we close out the psalm. Number one is this. Every Christian can be hopeful. The church of Christ will live and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The church of Christ will live and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Earlier in the psalm, verses 9 and 10, David said, Those who know your name, they put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. There's a lot of doom and gloom in our world today. And it seems as though, oftentimes, that the church is going to go out like a campfire that's had water poured on it. It seems as though the church is going to die. And here you have David saying to God, no, God is my stronghold, and those who run in there will be saved. In Matthew 16, verse 18, Jesus comes to Peter and he says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell, the gates of death, shall not prevail against it. Christ's church, Christ's people, God's people will continue. 
we can certainly see that Satan, the enemy, is influencing the world with intensifying waves of sin. God is still sovereign over Satan, and he's someday going to bring Satan to complete and final destruction, prophetic perfect. But for now, Satan is allowed to influence. Verses 13 through 20, the afflictions are happening. And it's tempting for us to think, God, if this continues, the church is going to be non-existent. But oh no, the gates of hell will never prevail against God's people because the stronghold is greater than the enemy. The greater that the darkness is, the brighter these lights are that are popping up all over the place called churches. Our teens just came back from Salt Lake where biblical Christianity is just poking through like lights through a dark canvas. Here pops up a church. There pops up a church. There pops up a church. In the Middle East, China, and the Far East, people are coming to Christ and their lives are being changed. In Africa, the gospel is spreading. It's going to all parts of the earth. It will go to all parts of the earth because the Bible says that before God, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will be before the throne. So you have this great enemy, and now you have this greater stronghold, and God is saying, I will protect my people. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. So instead of being shocked by the darkness or shocked by the intensifying waves of sin or what seem to be and probably are greater acts of Satan in our day, find your step as a Christian and join the march in confidence of who God is. Christ's church will prevail. It will prevail because not of how great we are, but because of how great God is as our stronghold. So here's Martin Luther expressing this in song. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he, amid the flood of mortal ills, he is prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and they are armed with cruel hate. On earth among us, we don't have an equal to Satan. So then he asks, did we in our own strength confide? Well, our striving, that would be losing. We're not the right man, that's Christ, on our side, the man of God's own choosing. And you ask who that may be, who's this right man that's on our side? Christ Jesus, it is he, Lord Sabaoth. The Lord of hosts, the mighty warrior who goes out for his people is his name. From age to age the same, and he must win the battle. Prophetic perfect. And though this world with devils filled, verses 13 through 20, should threaten to undo us, we will not fear. For God has willed his truth to triumph through us the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. 
That word, above all earthly powers, no thanks to them, that word abideth. The Spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. So let goods and kindred go. Let this mortal life also. The body, yep, they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. And so Christians, you can go on praising God for his provision and continuing to plead with God for his kingdom to go forward, but be hopeful. The church of Christ, the people of God, will live and the gates of hell will never prevail against it. Application number two. Be hopeful. Now number two, praise and prayer. What we see in this psalm is related to your view of God. Your praise and your prayer is related to your view of God. So verses one through 13, highly oriented towards praise. Verses 13 through 20, highly oriented towards prayer. It's all related to how you view God. Low appreciation for God, low view of God, low praise, low prayer life. But the reason why many Christians around the world, even this morning, and in this room can praise God, and even as you dragged yourself out of bed because you were tired and you were feeling the effects of maybe being outside in the heat yesterday, you might be saying, I don't feel like it, but I know it. I know who God is, and so I'm going to gather with God's people. I'm going to participate in praise and prayer. Even though I don't feel it right now, God, I know you are greater than anything. You have a big view of God in your hearts. Continue to cultivate that, folks. We have a lady in our small group who will bring us up to speed on things in life, and she'll often close by saying, it was such a God thing. Like, here's the thing that was going on, and there were so many different components that had to come together, or something happened right at the last moment, and she can say, it's such a God thing. And when you hear language like that, you get a window into somebody's heart knowing, man, they are completely dependent on God. They know that God is big. When David wrote this, God was front and center in his heart. He had a huge view of God. When we get to those places where we're saying, why does my heart feel like it's just flat? Why does it feel like the fire has gone out? You should step back and ask yourself the question, how have I been contemplating or thinking about God recently? Has he been at the front of my vision or has he been just merely one of the many peripherals and I'll do time over here when I need to? Your praise and prayer in your own life are a reflection of how big your view of God is. This has corporate implications for us. In our corporate gatherings, we often praise God through the vehicle of singing. And it can be a delicate balance, folks, as we talk about, if I can use the term worship, singing, because singing has turned into a very technological event. 
There are mics that are involved right here. There are screens that are involved. There are instruments that are involved. There's all kinds of stuff that is involved in singing. On one hand, technology and lighting and the right voice blends can really assist us in worshiping God. But on the other hand, here's the, here's the tipping point, the danger. Technology, lighting, right instruments can be a deceitful manipulation of getting people excited about something, but God is not really in front of them. The substance, the drive, the, even the excitement becomes atmospheric rather than God-centric. And I think we all know that there's that, okay, how do we walk through that because we have microphones that help amplify voices so that we can hear them and that encourages me to sing. Is this one of those things where I'm following technology more than I'm, like may God protect us with that. But this is so important for us as a church. When you come in here in the morning, it shouldn't be, oh, I'm walking into a room and that's where that room is sort of magical. If we go there, whoa, we've completely missed the bigness and the greatness of who God is. So we come into this room and we're thinking about who God is and that's why we read scripture and that's why we pray during our singing because we want our focus to be not atmospheric but God-centric the whole time. And so God forbid that the substance and the driving motives of our worship and prayer be anything other than the greatness of God. The true worship, the true motive for worship is because God is our stronghold. He has saved us and he has not only brought us into salvation right now, but he will complete that salvation for eternity. And while we are walking through life, our prayer has implications for how we view God. This past week, Chris and I were burdened to pray for our children in very specific ways. And it was like God was just stirring in my heart you need to be intentional about praying for your children this week for physical and spiritual protection. Why? Because I know that there's an enemy that is greater than mom and dad. I know there's an enemy that is greater than my children, and that enemy wants to sink hooks into each one of your children's hearts and pull them away. Are we pleading with God, the true stronghold, that he would be bringing our children into faith and showing them how great he is. He is our stronghold. He is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of our prayer. How is your praise and your prayer doing on an individual level? It truly is related to your view of God. And if you find yourself struggling I'm just not where I know I should be. And this is not some sort of guilt trip because we all know that we can pray more, but sometimes you recognize, man, my prayer life, my praise life has been a flat line. We all then, we must come back to the view of God. He is our stronghold. He's greater than our enemy. And he leads us into his salvation for eternity, eternity. All those blades of grass, eternity. Let's pray.